Everybody in the room over 40 was taken back to their like homecoming dance days, right? Remember the 1974 hit by the great band America and all of you younger like, what? What's that? But... Well, welcome everybody. So glad you're here. We're in this series called Reawakening to Jesus. And if you woke up this morning and you kind of had one of those angst inside of you, Uh, kind of this ache of incompleteness, a longing for things to be different. If you've been carrying that around for a bit, I believe this morning it's like a spiritual homing beacon inside. It's like a spiritual GPS that's pointing to what we're going to be looking at this morning, which is a reawakening to Jesus' return. That the way things are right now is not the way they'll always be. Can I get an amen on that point? And Jesus says there's this reality that he's going to return. And today it's about an awakening, an alertness, an attentiveness, a a living in light of a reality that's to come. As sure as a reality that you woke up this morning with breath of life in your lungs, this reality of Jesus will indeed occur. And I don't, I don't think it's, I don't think it just changed any, I think it changes everything if we can just get our hands around this perspective. So here's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to look at the what, the how, and the why. What is this phrase, the return of Christ? Because it's a bit of an internal church vocabulary term. What is it? How did Jesus speak about the events or the signs surrounding his return? And then thirdly, why it matters for us today. So open up your Bibles if you haven't already done so. We're going to start in Acts chapter 1, and then we're going to make our way to Mark chapter 13. So Acts chapter 1 is the setting for the what in verse 6. Now the book of Acts picks up where the biographies of Jesus end. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, four biographies of Jesus, known as the four Gospels. Where the Gospels end, Acts begins. So Jesus is crucified, buried, raised to life. He's been walking around and appearing to people for 40 days in his resurrected state. Do you think that might generate a few conversations. You think there might be a bit of a buzz on the street about this guy who was executed, who's now walking around, talking and interacting with people very publicly. So he was doing that for 40 days, end of the gospel accounts, in the beginning of the book of Acts. And in Acts, he's gathered now in his resurrected state with his disciples, and he's having a conversation with them, chapter 1, verse 6. So when they met together, they asked him, The disciples are asking Jesus, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? (laughs) So the Jews always had in their mind, the expectation was this, when their Messiah, Messiah is a Bible word for the anointed of God, the rescuer, the redeemer, the long-awaited savior of the world, when their Messiah comes, here's what the Jews had in mind. The Romans would be kicked out and the Jews would come out from under that oppression. That was like a package deal. So when Messiah comes, Rome's done, we're back in power. So this is what the the disciples are like. Clearly they were were on team Jesus going into resurrection weekend. A few of them kind of waffled a little bit, right? Peter was on the struggle bus, Judas sold out. But a core of the group, even though it was hard for them to understand, their Messiah was executed, 
And they were wondering if it was all game over. And then Sunday comes, stones rolled away, Jesus walks out. If they were kind of 50-50, they're all in now. They're like, clearly you are the Messiah, right? You are resurrected and alive. So when are we going to get on with the real program of kicking the Romans out and putting us back in a place of out from under oppression? That's the question they're asking. Jesus responds, verse 7, he said to them, It's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has sent by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And if you know the geography at that time, it's like concentric circles expanding out. This is Acts 1-8 paralleling end of Matthew 28, the Great Commission. Where Jesus said to his followers, this mission is going to go out to the ends of the earth. This is Jesus' way of saying, Holy Spirit's going to come on you for the mission at hand, message to the ends of the earth. Verse 9, after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven, here's a key phrase, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. So here's the sequence. I put this little diagram together, right, as we kind of track the life of Christ as he enters in. Can you put that up on the screen, V? So we've got this incarnation, crucifixion, resurrection, and then Acts 1 records the ascension. The ascension is this picture here in Acts 1 where he ascends into heaven. So the sequence is now at the end of the ascension is the promise of Christ's return. So the gap between ascension and return is what's known as the church age. The book of Acts records the beginning of the church age. It started in 33 AD. Are you tracking with me? So at the beginning, right, he sent via the womb of the Virgin Mary. So from zero to 33, you've got incarnation, crucifixion, resurrection. That covers the first 33 years of Jesus' earthly life. And then from 33, he ascends, and now he said the church age is this promise, this gap between ascension and his promise that in the same way you saw him go, he will return. In the language of the church, we call this the second coming or the promise of Christ's return. And no doubt, if you were the early disciples in this upper room in Jerusalem, you probably would have thought, surely next week, maybe next month, for sure next year, because we got to get on with the program, right? we got to get out from Rome's iron fist, and you're clearly the Messiah, and when the Messiah comes, this show's on the road. And here we are, 1989 years later. We're still in the gap. We're still living in the church age. You with me? I didn't lose anybody yet, right? So we'll come up for air in a minute here, but just stay with me. Like this section, right? We're living in the era that has an end date to it. The church age isn't going to go on forever. The church age is from the time of ascension until Christ's return. And there is an end date. Make no mistake about it. But we'll come back to it in a minute. Jesus says, don't be preoccupied with when. Be prepared when it does happen. So don't be, right, don't be focused on prediction, be about preparation. This is what Jesus focused on here. 
And so what he's referring to is this picture of the way you saw him ascend. Can you imagine that scene? It had to be overwhelming for those. There's the resurrected Christ is ascending, and then you've got two guys, most likely angelic figures clothed in white, having a conversation with them. Do you look up or you look this way? There's a lot going on. Right? Huh, 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 huh. In the same way you see him go, he will come back. What is today is not what will always be. We're in the gap between ascension and return. And I was reading this morning in Matthew 24 and kind of my regular Bible reading in the language of Matthew, he said it this way, Christ is going to return clothed in great glory and power, surrounded with a loud trumpet call by a host of angels. I don't know about you, but that says we're not going to miss it, okay? It's not, it's not incarnation, humble manger, Bethlehem, obscurity. He came clothed in obscurity in his incarnation. I promise you, church, in his return, he's going to be clothed, not in obscurity, but in majesty, power, and with great glory, surrounded by a great trumpet shout. No one is going to miss this scene. He's going to come back robed in his full glory and authority as a reigning and ruling resurrected king. That's what the return of Christ is, which says to us today, the space we're living in, there's something inside of us that's longing for things to be set right. Yes, that's what it's like to live in the church age. There's this ache of incompleteness. There's this angst inside of us that stuff's just not the way it's supposed to be. Yes, that's how it is. Listen how N.T. Wright, a great scholar, put it this way. Believing in the second coming affirms that Jesus remains sovereign and will return at last to put everything right. This putting right, the biblical word for it is justice, is the sort of sign of relief event that the whole world at its best and at many other times too longs for most deeply. So, if you're carrying around inside of you this longing for things to be set right, if you're exhausted in saying either of things about yourself, that's not right, or things about the world, that's not right. If you're constantly living in that space and you're exhausted from carrying that weight, here's what Jesus wants you to know. There is a day coming when that is set right. And this is what his second coming is about. This is return. And so I want to look now at how did it, what did he say to the early disciples in another section in Mark chapter 13. Turn to Mark chapter 13. We'll look at how did Jesus speak about this. Because he did talk about it, not just in Acts 1, gave him a picture that he would return in a similar way as exit. But here's how he talked about, some, some call it the signs surrounding his return. So Mark 13, here's what he says. He's speaking to Peter, James, John, and Andrew. You can get that from verse 3. Verse 5 of Mark 13, Jesus says to those guys, Watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name claiming I am he and will deceive many. Underline many in verse 6, first word of verse 6, and underline many, last word of verse 6. So here Jesus is saying, hey, when I return, the signs surrounding my return, one of the first markers is going to be, there's going to be a whole host of false teachers. 
there's going to be a whole bunch of people spouting off a whole bunch of stuff in Jesus' name that doesn't have anything to do with Jesus. There's going to be a whole bunch of people step forward and claiming to have some insight, some corner on the spiritual truth market in the name of Jesus, and they don't have anything to do with Jesus. And Jesus said, you've got to watch out. This is going to be happening all over the place. Like what happened here, I just kind of put a few pictures you can follow up here on the screen. Like this guy in Brazil named Alvaro Thies. He's a former waiter in Brazil. In the 1970s, here's what he claimed. He claimed he heard a voice from heaven telling him he's the same Jesus that was crucified 2,000 years ago. So he changed his name to Henri Cristo. That's his name now. And he wears a white robe, and he built a little white throne, and he's got a group of followers that wear these blue robes, and they cart him around on a red velvet cart. Yeah, Benny will come, my name, outside Brazil. You can look it up, read all about it. Or you can go down to South Africa. Here's Moses Longwain. He's a jeweler in Johannesburg, South Africa. He claimed to have a dream in 1992 that God identified him as the Messiah. You are the Jesus that was resurrected, the Son of God. So Moses thought, that's awesome. I'm going to take the title, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's on his business card now. How would you like to visit that jeweler? That had to be something. And he runs around, he's got like 40 disciples that follow him around. And he teaches all of them and anyone else who will listen that he's never going to die. But if you looked at pictures of Moses today, verses 1992, uh, not sure how it's working out. I don't know, I'm going to bet on that one. Or you can go down to Australia. Did you know about Alan, Alan John Miller? He's a software manufacturer in Australia. In 2011, Alan began declaring he was Jesus Christ, and his wife is Mary Magdalene. Here's, John, here's Alan John's own words, quote, just a little over 2,000 years ago, we arrived on the earth for the first time. My name then was Yeshua ben Yosef, or Jesus of the Bible, the son of Joseph and Mary. Mary's name, my wife, then was Mary Magdala, the woman identified in the Bible as Mary Magdalene. Miriam was my wife then, and the first person I appeared to after I was crucified. Wow. Many will come in my name. You could keep going. You could go to look up the retired Siberian traffic cop named Viserin. He's got a whole group of followers because he's claiming he's Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Or you could go down, you could go over to Great Britain. There's a former British MI5 agent, a former British spy named David Shaler, who claims to be Jesus Christ and is running around teaching everybody about it. And he's got a bunch of followers. Or you go down to Zambia in Africa. There's a taxi cab driver in Africa. You can flag his taxi down. And if you meet him, he claims that God dropped him from heaven in 1999 as the Messiah. And he'll take you to your destination. And on and on and on we could go. Many will come in my name, deceiving many. There's a whole bunch of stuff done in the name of Jesus that doesn't have anything to do with Jesus. And granted, those are some extreme stories. But listen, let's not think that, you know, we here in North America, we somehow like, you know, we're more mature and advanced than all of that. Come on now. Have you flipped on Christian TV lately? This is why it's important and why we around here as a church constantly keep bringing you back to this. 
We have to use the filter of this God-breathed book on whatever teaching is being given. The Jesus being proclaimed to you has to run through this filter. If the Jesus of the New Testament is not the Jesus you're hearing, then you just need to politely bow out. You with me? This is why from the youngest of child around here to hopefully by God's grace to the oldest of adults, we keep bringing you back to immersion in this God-breathed book because many, many, many will come in the name of Jesus proclaiming truth in Jesus that has anything to do with Jesus. And we're going to have to be wise. Jesus says, watch out. Can you imagine the emphasis Jesus might bring in 2022 if he said that in 33 AD? (laughs) If he said that to Peter, Andrew, James, and John before they had the connectivity of a device in your pocket that could go to the ends of the earth, that could spout off whatever YouTube and TikTok theologian there is, could you imagine what he might say? Careful, young people. In all the places you land, are you using the filter of this God-breathed book for whoever is sitting there spouting off some version of their truth on the corner of the market? It doesn't matter how many letters they have by their name. Young people, as you head off to college, use the filter of God's word to discern, is this professor or professor spouting off truth? Because many will come in his name and deceive many. And as a church, we've got to be faithful. And this is a standard I'm asking you to hold us to here. If the Jesus being proclaimed to you from this place here isn't in line with the Jesus revealed here, it's your responsibility to say something, to come forward, to confront, to ask questions. That we want to be the kind of community that keeps the Jesus of the New Testament as he's revealed himself to be before you in all ways. This is the first sign. This is what it means to live in the church age. The church age is going to be a spiritually noisy age. It's going to be a confusing time. And we're going to have to watch out. We're going to have to use great discernment. And from a parenting side, we're going to have to apply a lot of wisdom as parents and grandparents to help the generations coming behind us sift through all this spiritual noise. Lest they're wandering off with some jeweler in Johannesburg or some guy on a red card in Brazil or so I mean false teachers are going to be abounding in the gap between ascension and return Jesus said you got to watch out the second thing he said verse 7 when you hear of wars and rumors of wars don't be alarmed such things must happen But the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famine. So wars, global conflicts, natural disasters. It's another like marker, sign, like this gap between ascension and return. What's going to be involved in this gap? False teachers, wars, global conflicts, natural disasters. In the last 100 years, did you know that 10% of the world's population has been killed in the context of war? Just in the last hundred years. That's more blood spilled on the battlefield of war in the last hundred years and than the previous, all the centuries combined for human history. Just in the last hundred years. Now, parentheses here. This is where I think, this is where I think the secular worldview 
if you're adhering, by the word secular, mean an anti-God, like God's on the margins. This is kind of, kind of a man-centered, human-centered worldview. Here's where I think the secular worldview has some challenges. It's got a bit of dilemma to kind of step back and observe human history. Because the secular worldviews, here's what the view of human progress is tied to. A secular worldview says humans are going to pr- progress if we can remove the external barriers to progress. I.e., if we can just get more technologically advanced, if we can just provide higher education, if we can just work out a better social and political policy, if we can get those external things right, then human progress will advance, will go where it needs to go. But human history teaches us, if you just look at history, you can become more technologically advanced. You can become higher in education. You could form all kinds of political parties and social agendas. And here's what you find. All those advancements can be used to, for evil purposes as much for good, which elevates what Jesus said. The barrier to human progress, hear this, the barrier to human progress, Jesus said, is not external, it's internal. Jesus said this, he came to make a renovation of the heart. Jesus said, hey, make no mistake about it. Jesus is about renovating the whole world. But you know how he's going to start? He's not starting out there. He's starting in here. Jesus said, I'm going to make all things new in here, and that's going to ripple effect out there. And if you study human history, that's where the scripture that says that you overcome evil with good. How does that happen? The revolution of Jesus, that's how that happened. The early disciples get distracted like we do. Well, just kick the Romans out and put the Jews back in power. We've got our own struggles today. And we look outside. We, well, if we could just get this party out and this party in and this candidate and this candidate. We're focused on all the wrong thing. We focus here. Renovation of the heart here. Renewal starts here. And then it moves out there. More people with renewed hearts in here are by definition going to change the landscape of the culture out there. And that's why Jesus' revolution is unlike any that this world has ever seen. So he says, hey, you're going to see wars. You're going to see rumors of wars. You're going to see conflict. I think a secular worldview has a real challenge to wisely assess, like, how's this vision for human progress going? Because it doesn't look so great in 2022. And we're more technologically advanced, and we have more higher education. We've got more things available to us than ever. Because the problem isn't external, it's internal. It's evil from within that's got to get dealt with before the evil on the outside can get worked out. So these are signs of living in the church age, from ascension to return. False teachers, wars, global conflicts, natural disasters, two more. Persecution of Jesus' followers. You see this in verse 9. He says to his disciples, you must be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. Now, that's Bible speak for, if you, if you don't know a lot about flogging, right? They're long leather whips with small lead beads. And they would take an average of 40 lashes on your back. And by the 40th lash, so much flesh will have been pulled away from your back, your rib cage would be exposed. That's what it means of flogging. Hey, you're going to be in the name of Jesus brought before, and your backs are going to be whipped, and your flesh is going to be peeled back in the name of Jesus because you're following me. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. So lest you think those in higher positions of power and authority in various government entities, they're not all going to be on the pro-Jesus train. 
Several of them are going to be on this. Find the Christians, arrest them, whip them, and flog them. That's what Jesus is trying to say. This is what it means to live in the church age. The time between ascension and return. Verse 10, or verse 11. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. So Jesus said, hey, there's going to be persecution. It's going to get really, really hard. I put in your notes a map globally put together by an organization called Open Doors. They've been doing research on what global persecution for the Christian church has been about for 30 plus years. So today, here's a picture. The most, so the darker sections on the globe there are where they say they're in high or extreme conditions of persecution to be a follower of Jesus. Notice it's right predominantly in the Middle East, North Africa, and a few other sections. About 309 million Christians today live in a place that's either in high or extreme place of persecution. And Jesus said, this is how this works in the church age. In the time between his ascension and his return, this is what it's going to be like. And then he says in verse 10, the fourth thing, he says there's going to be gospel access to all people everywhere. See in verse 10, and the gospel must first be preached to all nations. You see that? So Jesus says here in this gap, the work you're going to be doing is getting the message of the gospel, the hope of new life in Christ to the ends of the earth. To who? To all people everywhere. Like that's what you're going to be doing in this space. Like Jesus isn't going to return until the unreached people group count hits zero. So that's why it's 1989 years and growing and you know, as a pastor, I get asked all the time, Pastor, don't you think we're, we're closer to the end time? Like, end times has certainly got to be. I mean, 2020 for sure thought, 2021, surely 2022, maybe. We're one day closer today than we were yesterday. That's my standard answer. We're one day closer today than we were yesterday. We've got to be about this. We've got to be busy about this. There are currently 6,800 groups of people on the globe who are unreached. For various reasons, they have all kinds of barriers set up that don't allow the gospel to come to them. 6,800 they account for 40% of the globe's population, 40%. Now, on the positive side, you can say, hey, from this small little band of Jesus followers in Acts chapter 1, 60% of the globe is following Jesus. That's unbelievable. From that small little band there. I mean, here we are in North America, Indiana, it made it all, it made it all the way here. It's a long way from Jerusalem, 60%. On the challenging side is, hey, we've got a lot of work to do, right, church? 40% in some of the hardest, most difficult parts of the world. Those of you involved with Perspectives class on Wednesday night, you're getting a front row seat to these realities. And that's our work as a church, that in the gap between his ascension and his return, we get busy about getting the gospel to people who don't have access to the gospel, to all people everywhere. So I'm excited about some of our new global partnerships like we're doing in Bolivia. And I mean, we're moving some things forward. Bosnia and Bolivia and all these other places. Why? Because what Jesus said, gospel's got to go to the ends of the earth. Before that event that we long for so deeply occurs. And the theological term for this is imminent. There's an imminence to this return. Look at verse 32. In the midst of all this conversation about his return, here's what he says in verse 32. No one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, be alert. You do not know when that time will come. So Jesus says, be clear that it's going to occur, but don't be distracted with when. 
So if you've ever gotten one of those text messages or have that little flyer put on your car, you know, Jesus is going to return on this date. You ever had one of those situations? And I always pick that up and say, well, I'm pretty confident I know one day he's not going to return. And that's that day. And validate all that wacko stuff that's going on with whatever. Because he said, you're not going to know. So don't spend time with a calculator and a calendar in your Bible trying to calculate up when he's going to come back. Don't focus on prediction. Focus on preparedness. Jesus said, watch out, be ready. What if it were today, church? What if Jesus today, what if the skies parted and the trumpets blast and the King of kings and the Lord of lords descended in all of his great glory and majesty? What if it were today? Would he find us ready? Would he find us watchful? Would he find us prepared and awake and alert to this? That's what he wants us preoccupied with. Not when but being prepared for that day. So the what is Jesus is going to come back in the way you saw him go, Acts chapter 1. The how, like what are the events surrounding it? There's going to be false teachers. There's going to be wars and global conflicts. There's going to be persecution. And there's going to be this gospel access. There's going to be this progressive movement of the gospel to the ends of the earth. Those are kind of the dynamics surrounding it, but all under this banner. You're not going to know when. Don't be trying to figure out the exact thing. That's not the important point. And then lastly, why all this then matters for us today. And I think at the core of it, as I put in your notes, it means that history, church, it means that history is flowing in the direction of hope. Does anybody need a little of that today? I define hope as this, confident expectation that goodness is coming. That's how I define hope. Confident expectation that goodness is coming. It means that what is, is not what will always be. It means in the language of Revelation 21, there's a day coming when Jesus from the throne declares, quote, I am making everything new, end quote. That day's coming. It means our vocabulary is going to shift one day. It's going to shift into this place where we get really fluent at the no longers. Anybody looking forward to the day when we're talking about the no longers? Like no longer any disease or death or mourning or pain or injustice or evil. No longer will we say that's not right. No longer will we wonder, I wonder if that's true. And I wonder, if, uh, is that true or is that true? No longer any of that debate. No longer will we lie down with an ache of despair on the inside. No longer will sin and darkness and evil wreak havoc inside of us. No longer. Because Christ's return promises a restoration of a life we've always longed for, but it's just been out of our reach. That's a promise of his return. That's a longing inside of you. I put this quote in your notes from John Eldridge. He said, finally, the totality of our being will be saturated only with goodness. Think of it. Think of all that you're not going to have to wrestle with anymore. The fear that's been your lifelong battle. The anger, the compulsions, the battles to forgive, that nasty root of resentment. No more internal civil wars. No doubt, no lust, no regret, no shame, no self-hatred, no gender confusion. What has plagued you these last many years, what has plagued you all your life, your healer will personally lift it from your shoulders. That's why this matters, church, today. 
Because Christ's return promises history is flowing in the direction of hope. That in Jesus there is confident expectation that goodness is coming. Outside of Jesus, you better give a long, hard, deep, soul-searching look at future outside of Jesus. It's a sobering reality. But in Jesus, you can be rooted in this. He gets the last word. Just this past week, I'd reached out to a good friend. I hadn't been in contact with him for a while. I hadn't seen him for a while. And they were just on my heart. I was praying for him. I just sent a quick email. She's been battling cancer for a couple of years. And her husband just sent back kind of multiple paragraphs of, I just read it. And I said, this is not how it's supposed to be. She's a young mom, a wonderful wife and mother. She loves Jesus. She has three wonderful kids. And it appears that cancer is winning and she's losing the physical battle. And all the treatments kind of swing and a miss. And it just gets harder and harder. And so her husband said she started like doing a little, a little journal for her kids. She's anticipating the day when she's not going to be there, maybe at their key developmental stages, and she wants to write some things. And she's been doing real intentional, like building memories with her kids and doing special things with the time that she has, and on and on and on. And you just, you go through, you just look at it, and you go, and I just, as I prayed, I thought, Lord, come, Lord Jesus, come one day. The hope for her and for this family, because she's, she's in Jesus. Here's what she knows one day. In Jesus and through Jesus' name, cancer will be lifted from her body, and she will be whole. But in this gap between ascension and Christ's return, there's this ache, there's this groaning, there's IVs and treatments and unresolved stuff and things not like they're supposed to be. There's people saying goodbye to loved ones far too early. There's relational things that are fracturing and the ripple effect from sin. It just goes on and on and on. You look at it, you go, and the longing inside of us, why Christ's return matters so much is this reality that we have today is not the way it's always going to be. In the same way you saw him go, he will return. And when he returns, he's going to be clothed in great glory and power, surrounded by an angelic trumpet call. And he's going to come in his kingly authority and power, and he's going to set all that's wrong. He's going to set it right. All the stuff that's kind of unresolved in this life, said it's an end date. Because history is flowing in the direction of hope. So no matter what you've carried in this morning, no matter how deep your valley, no matter how dark your days, no matter how overwhelming your circumstance, here's what Jesus wants you to know today. If you're in him, lift up your eyes this morning to an event that he promises will occur and kind of bend the hope of that future event, bend it back into our current realities today and let that future shape the grounds of our identity today.
Because there is a confident expectation that goodness is coming. That's not wishful thinking. That's grounded in the reality of the resurrected Christ. The tomb is empty. They haven't found his body because there's no body to find. He ascended into heaven. And in the way you saw him ascend, visible and bodily, in an eminent time period, he will return. And church, I think that's grounds for hope. That we can be a people of great hope in the gap between ascension and return. Because we're going to look forward with confident expectation of the goodness and we're going to bend it back into this current reality and live in light of that destiny. Worship team, why don't you come on back up? I got one final story and then I'll bridge us to the communion table. Many of you are familiar with the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Hope you enjoy it as much as I do. That last book in the series, The Return of the King, there's this scene at the end. It's one of my favorites where the ring is finally destroyed. You know when you're like, multi, you know, it's 12, 13 hours, right? Cinematic journey on this thing. You get to the 12 or 13 hour mark before the ring is destroyed. And you remember the scene at Mount Doom? Sam wakes up and he's surprised he's alive. He like wakes up and he's like, and he's surprised Gandalf is there. So here's, here's the dialogue. Gandalf, Sam says, I thought you were dead but then I thought I was dead myself. Here's the line. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world? A great shadow has departed, said Gandalf, and then he laughed, and the sound was like music or like water in a parched land. And as he listened, the thought came to Sam that he had had not heard laughter, the pure sound of merriment, for days upon days without count. It fell upon his ears like the echo of all the joys he had ever known. Church, that's the sound of Jesus' return right there. The sound of Jesus' return is this. Is everything sad going to come untrue? Yes. In Jesus' name, yes. That's the promise. That's what it means to be reawakened to his second coming. And so this morning, we're going to go to the communion table with this invitation. Do you know the Apostle Paul when he came and met Christ on the Damascus Road and he became a key leader of this early church and he bore a lot of whips on his back. <laughs> he had a lot of floggings, a lot of scars. His life was really, really hard, but he was faithfully devoted and he wrote 13 of the 27 New Testament books and in one of his letters to the church in Corinth, he told them they're to gather around the communion table. And he said, when you get the broken, the bread, which represents the broken body, and the juice, which represents the shed blood. When you do this, he used this line in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 26. He says, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Do you see that, church? It's communion tied with an eye to his return. That this 
The surety and certainty that Christ will return is as sure and certain as the cross was bloodied and the tomb is empty. And that as you take these elements, we kind of internalize this, right? The reality, you internalize Jesus' life and you invite him into that angst You invite him into that ache of incompleteness. You invite him into that longing for things to be different. And you say, Jesus, lift up my eyes. Help me to ground my current realities in this destiny. And in the same way they saw you go, you're going to return. And when you return, you're going to get the last word and set it right. So you don't need to be a member of Eagle Church to participate in communion here. But the scriptures are clear. You need to be a follower of Jesus. Our table's open to anyone who's made a response to Jesus that, hey, he's my Savior and he's my Lord. And the table's there in the back. If you missed on the way in in just a moment, you can get up and grab your elements there. There's some gluten-free options on one end of the table. Those of you at home on the screen, this is your time. Grab some elements that are near you that you can participate and join with us. Involve the children that are there. We're able to be present in this as well. But this is our opportunity to do exactly what the Apostle Paul says, to remember broken body, remember shared blood, shed blood, and remember and proclaim and declare this until he comes. We do this until when? Until the heavens part and the trumpet blast sounds and the king robed in great glory and power and authority until he descends and he returns. We do this until then. And perhaps today, as you take these elements, maybe I just want to have this picture as the team kind of leads us through a couple of songs and just internalizing the hope of the resurrected Christ. Like literally take it into your body. The hope that the way things are right now is not the way they'll always be. That current is not eternal. That's hope. And so around here during our communion time, we like to open up our prayer benches here on both sides of the room. We believe Jesus purchases a wholeness of healing. Spiritual healing for sure, mental, emotional, physical, relational healing we believe is available here through Christ. And so if you'd like to come and have prayer, maybe you yourself would like prayer for something you're carrying, you come and just kneel at the benches. There'll be some folks here to pray with you. Or maybe you come and you want to represent someone or a situation that you know is needing kind of the intervention of hope and healing that Jesus provides. You come on their behalf and we'll pray with you and for you that way. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you so much. This invitation to reawaken to a promise that I think matters so much for us today. Would you infuse us with your hope by the power of the Holy Spirit? As we take these elements, we remember your body was broken. We remember your blood was shed. And we worship you. Until you come, we worship you. In Jesus' name.